You are listening to the Talking Tough Podcast, the world's toughest men and women at their most vulnerable. Their stories of triumph, their falls from grace, and their climb back to the top, to life. This is Rick Bassman here for Talking Tough on the Podcast One Network. Hey everybody, Rick Bassman here again for Talking Tough in this week's edition of Tall Tales. Just a random story from a lifetime of some pretty out there, crazy, oftentimes larger than life experiences. In keeping with our uh, unstated theme this week, that would be Japan week, because the uh, the ring in the cage story this week was called Hashimoto Will Kill Me. Um, and that took place in Tokyo. And that story, or all over Japan, and ended in Tokyo. That story is at www.talking-tough.com. Um, also at uh, youtube.com forward slash Rick Bassman. Uh, on all that, really appreciate your support. And let's keep the audience uh, entertained, I hope. I'd love to hear from you guys. I'll get back to any and all comments. You know, if they're not very nice, that's fine. Um, love to hear what you think about all this. Uh, in the goal of continuing to build Talking Tough, just as my producer, John Pozorowski, has built his empire, the two-man power trip empire. Um, okay, tall tales. In keeping with Japan Week theme, the story today is called Running a Collection on the Yakuza. That's a bit tongue-in-cheek, but not exactly inaccurate. As you'll see, the Yakuza, of course, is... Uh, Japan's version of the U.S.'s old mafia, or Japan's organized crime. Um, very storied, uh, pretty much in the vernacular, so most people will know what the Yakuza is and probably even know a little bit about it. In Japan, it's largely known that you know, in the 90s and the 2000s at least, the first decade of the 2000s, that the mixed martial arts business there was largely supported by, and in many cases run, by the Yakuza. There was certainly a, a very dominant Yakuza influence in, uh, in K1, in Pride, in, in Pancrase, and in all the big companies over there. And, you know, where in Japan, that's actually, at least at the time, was a cool thing. Um, it was kind of a, a kind of something to associate with Japan's version of honor, actually. Um, very different culture there. Uh, organized crime were conducting themselves in a very different manner there. So in any case, at that time, amongst others, I was representing Mark Kerr. Uh, Mark was signed to Pride. Mark at that time was arguably the number one heavyweight fighter in the world. And we did a deal, I should say I did a deal for Mark at Pride where it was a very lucrative deal, especially for those times. And he was one of the top paid guys in the world at that point. And Mark was, and he'll tell you this now, he would tell you, he would have told you this then. Mark was pretty loose with the dollars. He um, he had expensive taste and great taste. You've never seen, you can imagine the top heavyweight MMA fighter in the world being that focused on like designer items for his home, uh, his cars, his wardrobe, all that. Very cultured, very classy, uh, not, uh, not a spendthrift, very much the opposite. So he'd get these big paydays and he'd run out of money. So I had an idea, which I ran by Mark, to in doing the new deal with Pride to agree to how many fights he would have in a year, how much each fight was worth, how much he'd be paid, 
but to amortize those across monthly payments. Like that way, Mark, you can budget. Great. And it made it easier on everybody because the wire every month, it was a big number, would come to the Ultimate Industries account. That was my company. Um, from there, we go to Valor Fighting. We would deduct our 10% commission and then forward the balance to Mark. And he actually was able to keep on a budget. Things were good for everybody. Mark was a star in Japan. They loved him at uh, Pride. Uh, he loved working with them and for them. It was all in the family. It was happy for everybody. So Mark, as he would sometimes do, would get involved in the deal-making side of things himself. He had promised not, very intelligent guy. He had promised not to do this once we made our arrangement, but he picked up the phone or sent an email and made some demands over and above what his contract stated at the time, uh, unbeknownst to me, and Pride was pissed. Pride went ahead and said, we may kill your deal. But one thing they did while they were considering if they're gonna kill his deal or not is they stopped the monthly payments. And again, it was a lot of money. And you know, Mark needed that money to survive at that point in time. Um, you know, we missed the commission. We didn't need it to survive, but we were doing well at that point. My organization, my company, my staff, nonetheless, it was a nice number we were missing every month. But more so, that was Mark's entire support. So he said, Rick, what have I done? Man, we gotta get this back on track. So I went after Pride for a three month period of time to get the deal back on track. And they cold shouldered us to a degree. Um, we had you know, busted honor by what had happened. They wanted us to pay the price and, and that's fine. That's how business works, especially there. And we got to the point where things started to warm up. They were getting much better. And the Pride Brass were gonna be in Las Vegas for the K1 event. So even though there are competitors, there was a lot of intermixing amongst the Japanese companies. You probably would not have seen Vince McMahon going to a w, Eric Bischoff run WCW show back in the day and vice versa. But you would see um, Master Ishii and uh, Sadaharu Tanigawa from K1 go to a Pride show and you'd see Nobuhiku Sakakabara for Pride go to a K1 show. So. I'm told, and there are a lot of names, I know a lot to keep straight, I'm told by Yukino Hamada, the booker for Pride, that Mr. Saki Kibara will be in Las Vegas for K1. We think everything has worked out. He wants to know if you and Mark can be in Japan, sorry, in Las Vegas, to meet with him and see if we can get things worked out. Great, absolutely. It's an easy trip, it'd be fun. We're friends with K1 at this point. Let's go and keep it all in the family. So we go. We do some preliminary meetings. Everything's coming along nicely. Saki Kabara wants to sit down and talk with Mark one-on-one -on -one to make sure everything is cool. Uh, we did some real preparation for that meeting. So even some rehearsal, if you will, with Mark. Um, you know, Mark knew the script, but that said, Mark's also a very genuine guy. So he didn't only know the script, he believed in the script. And, and that came across in his meeting with Saki Kabara. So I'm then told by Yukino, Okay, Rick, all is good. Um, why don't we, uh, you know, let's amend and sign the new agreement and we'll have the version shortly. Great. They had it that day. We went through it. It was fine. So I said to you, Kino, that's excellent. One thing I have to ask with all respect, can you please, as soon as you get back to Japan, catch up on Mark's payments? Uh, he needs it. And she said, absolutely. She called me later and she said, we can do you one better. 
uh, we have the money here in cash if you want it in cash. And Mr. Saki Kabara has invited you to join him in his suite. And I said, great. And, and with the idea being that they'll pay us. So my partners in management at that time were Barry Bloom and his partner, Michael Braverman. Michael was in Las Vegas on that trip. We were hanging out a bit together. Michael, really nice guy, ultra, ultra conservative. Not the kind of guy you would think would necessarily be in the pro wrestling and mixed martial arts management business, but he was. And he was very good at it and a good guy to, to have around. So I bring up Michael and say, hey, Michael, I'm going up to um, Saka, Saka Kabara San Suite to pick up the cash that Mark is owed. Would you like to join me? And of course, I cleared that with pride. And they said, of course, we'd like to have Mr. Braverman as well. So Michael and I ride up under escort. They've got a private elevator because it goes right to the top of the hotel. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry to back up. The K-1 event is at, um, was at the Bellagio. So we knew that uh, Sake Kabara had a, a suite at the top of the Bellagio. And when I'm told we're going to meet him there, I said, oh, well, so the elevator's at the bottom. And Yukino says, no, the suite at Caesars. So they essentially have the presidential suite at Bellagio and at Caesars both just throw it in there to kind of get the scope of how these guys roll. Michael and I go to Caesars, we ride up and elevator doors open into this. It's a suite like you see in the movies and, you know, on television shows, it, the presidential suite at Caesars Palace. So uh, we're met by a couple of gentlemen. They say, oh, over here, please. And we walk over to these great uh, living area with uh couches, sofas, very lush that are surrounding this whole conversation area. They ask us to have a seat. They say, uh, would you gentlemen uh, join Mr. Saki Kabara uh, in a toast? We have some fine single malt scotch. Absolutely, of course. I mean, whether you drink scotch or not, and I did at that point, of course you accept. So <laughs> what happened? They say, please sit right here. They show us where to sit. They serve our drinks. Two guys come around from behind and they stand behind us and we turn around and look. And I kid you not, just like in the movies, um, they're without pinky fingers. So we <laughs> we were surrounded, so to speak. Michael, I'll never forget, he sees us and he gulps like a like a cartoon style gulp, not a scotch, but uh, kind of over some concern over the setup and what's behind us. A few minutes later. Saki Kabara enters the room. This is the, the CEO and president of the Pride organization. And he sits down, he goes, yes, so I've talked with Mark, everything seems good. Uh, I know you've conducted your, your business with Yukino. We look good there. Um, we're now gonna go ahead and pay you guys. <laughs> and I think he was goofing around with us just for a fact, say, you know, enunciator, pronouncing, emphasizing words like pay you guys. And <laughs> okay, great. Um, this is good. We're happy. We think. And then he gestures to another man. The man leaves, he comes back into the room, carrying a briefcase. He sets his briefcase down on the table in front of us and pops it open. Again, it's like a movie. This thing is, and it's a big briefcase. It is filled to the brim with huge, neat stacks of hundred dollar bills. Now, Mark was owed a lot of money at that point. I don't want to say how much because it would give the value of his contract, which wasn't public. It was a lot of money, um, well into the six figures. So they counted out, 
they didn't count bills. They counted stocks. They were, you know, banded together in $10,000 increments and boom, 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 put them down in front of me until it came out to the total of what Mark was owed. And you can look back at the briefcase and the dent that this money they paid Mark was, was the dent was barely perceptible. That's how much money was in this briefcase. I don't know if it was $2 million, $5 million. I don't know more than that. It was a lot. Anyway, that was it. So I, I call that running a collection on the Yakuza because we went to their suite with their guys behind us, got to enjoy their very expensive scotch. And we walked out with all the cash. So that was, uh, that was our collection. Um, it was fun. It's another experience, uh, you know, the kind that, you know, I never thought I'd have one of in a lifetime before I got into these businesses and ended up having literally hundreds of them. And it was, it was quite amazing. Um, one little PS on this uh, story, if you want to call it that is the, the MMA royalty was in town and this is a K one show. The pride people are there. So K one has a ballroom where all the fighters warm up and then an adjunct ballroom where people kind of hang out and catering and whatnot. So we had been in the catering room later that day. And at that point in time, Ken Shamrock and Tank Abbott had legitimate heat with each other. I was friends with both and was able to sort of broker a, a peace deal of sorts between them. And before long at this table, we had a big round table we're sitting at. It's myself and Ken and Tank. And then it's Alan Goas and Boss Rutten, Mark Kerr, Mark Coleman, uh, Don Fry, um, Sean and Justin McCulley. I mean, it was, it was quite a crew. And somebody said, let's go, let's get everyone together and go to the strip club. Now, I was never a big strip club fan, but I'm like, why, why would you not go with this group of guys? I mean, it would just be an experience just to go with them. Uh, so anyway, we you know, told them we had business and that we would, you know, meet them later. We come back down, everyone's still there. So we all roll over to Olympic Gardens together. And, you know, Olympic Gardens, it's one of those giant like theme park strip clubs. There are literally probably a hundred or more girls dancing at one time. And the bouncers there, it's very funny. They look like kind of like steroided Chippendales refugees, like giant guys, theatrical looking long hair. They look like pro wrestlers basically at that time. And they're known that jumps off in one of the clubs. They're known to like gang rush whoever the disturb whoever creating the disturbance and you know bodily pick the people up and just toss them out the door. And there's usually about 15, 20 of these guys working at once. So they're pretty well equipped to handle anything that goes down. We go to this club and I, I'll never forget as long as I live, Boss Rutten, Ellen Goas, and Don Fry, who all have were pretty heavily inebriated at that point in time, all decided to hop up on the stage, grab girls and like twirl them around. Like they weren't being assaulting at all, save for the fact they weren't supposed to jump on stage. They grabbed the girls that were like dancing with them like in waltzes. And these these bouncers, nowhere to be seen. They had like sunken into the recesses of the walls. Again, it's the McCulley brothers, it's Boss and Alan Goas and uh, Don Fry on stage. Tank Abbott and Ken Shamrock and uh, I think Gary Goodridge was there. Again, I know I'm missing some. So I go to the bathroom and once I um, get ready to walk out, a bunch of these bouncers descend on me. All the guys who had disappeared earlier, they said, um, hey, uh, what's your name? 
hey, Rick, hi, hi, I'm so-and-so, I'm so-and-so, nice to meet you. Uh, like, hey, nice to meet you guys. Thanks for the hospitality. They're like, can you control your friends? <laughs> like, for some reason, you know, despite my, and there are the pit bulls, like, that is EO Sparky, like clockwork, every edition of Talking Tough, we have the pit bull explosion, my apologies. But what I was saying is, for whatever reason, despite my smallish stature in the world of giants, people always thought I was in charge. So these bouncers come to me, they say, can you control your friends? And I'm like, it was, it was not a very elaborate answer. I said, nope, sorry guys. And uh, again, it's a kind of a story within a story. We collected our money from our curve. We spent a little bit, not much at Olympic Gardens. And uh, that was our Vegas trip. Let me tell you something you already know. The world ain't all sunshine and rainbows. It's a very mean and nasty place, and I don't care how tough you are, it will beat you to your knees and keep you there permanently if you let it. You, me, or nobody is going to hit as hard as life. But it ain't about how hard you hit. It's about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward. How much you can take and keep moving forward. That's how winning is done. Now, if you know what you're worth, now go out and get what you're worth. But you got to be willing to take the hits and not pointing fingers saying you ain't where you want to be because of him or her or anybody. Cowards do that and that ain't you. You're better than that.